This podcast is brought to you by Kingdom at Work. If you're a business owner or executive level leader looking to advance God's kingdom at work, sign up for one of their 2019 workshops at www.kingdomatwork.com slash events. Kingdomatwork.com slash events. Hey, thanks for tuning in to I Work For Him this afternoon as we broadcast you from Chicago. You can know that we are in Chicago at a huge conference and there's people mulling in the background. So if you're wondering what that sound is, we are being surrounded by mulling. That's what it is. Mulling in Mulling. the background. Mulling. Yeah. Mulling. Love for you to check us out online. That's right, Jim. They can go to iworkforhim.com. That's iwork4him.com. And they're really, the, I think the thing to, to focus on today is that if there's anything that they want to, our listeners ever want to go back and search, if they go to our podcast page, there's actually a search bar there so they can put in the name of a ministry. Maybe we said C12. Maybe we um, t- were talking about corporate chaplains. Maybe we were um, talking about a specific book. If they put that in there, they'll be able to find the show and listen to the podcast and learn more about that topic if they maybe had to get out of their car in the middle of a show and and wanted to go back. Um, So it's just a great resource and a way to find past shows that they may want to pick up again. Um, If you're not subscribed already to us on one of our podcast platforms too, that's a great resource to have automatically um, popping up on your phone and keeping up to date. All right. That's exactly right. Check us out online. Iworkforhim.com. That's iwork, the number four, him.com. All right. Let's take a trip out to Santa Barbara, California, where we pick up with Dr. Sandra Richter. She goes by Sandy, but I called her Dr. Sandra Richter because she worked it. She earned it. She she deserves the title. <laughs> Sandy Richter, welcome to I Work For Him. Hey, it's great to be here, Jim. Thanks it's, for the invitation. It's exciting. We always ask this question of every person the first time they come on our show is, how did you come to be a follower of Jesus? Um, it was funny because I knew you were going to ask me that question, and to answer it takes about three hours. So I'll give you the give us a uh, shorter version. I'll, I'll, I'll work on our shorter version. I actually was uh, raised in a Catholic home, um, had always been a God fearer in that upbringing, but I was also raised in a very, very troubled home and had never heard the gospel. Mm. I'd been in church every Sunday of my life, and no one had ever told me that Jesus actually wanted to know me and had a plan for my life and that interacting with the Almighty actually was possible. So I wandered across the street from my house into a little youth group in an Episcopalian church that was experiencing just a a Holy Spirit-led revival and a bunch of teenagers shared the gospel with me and brought me to Jesus and changed my life forever. How cool is that? I mean, it's it just pretty cool. That, that's awesome and to see how God is always chasing us down, always intersecting your life, and He got you to walk across the street. I love that that you mm-hmm. did that. All right, so we we fast forward in your life. You're a professor yes. at Westmont College. Yes, I am. And that's is that in Santa Barbara as well? Uh, it's in Santa Barbara. It's actually in Montecito, but um, Montecito is kind of a subtown. Uh, it's the site of I'm the sure the people in Montecito don't like hearing that they're a subtown, but <laughs> no, you know they probably know it. Actually, right? they do because they're hiding because Oprah Winfrey is one of our neighbors, oh. and uh, so is Katy Perry and her parents and a bunch of other people who would rather have their addresses unknown, but. Um, I think Montecito is best known right now because the Thomas Fire last year oh, sure. and the Montecito mudslide yes. were both in my backyard. Wow. Oh, wow. Yeah. It's been a rough year then. It was. And as a first year, you know, kind of... Um, that was your uh, first year there? That was my first year. Makes Welcome. you wonder why you moved, I suppose. Well, after five evacuations of one small 
private college. Um, that's a real bummer for recruitment and retention, just saying. <laughs> All right. So what is your specific area in study? I am an expert on Old Testament. I was uh, educated at Harvard in their Near Eastern Languages and Civilizations Department, which means I do a lot of language. I do a lot of history. I do a lot of archaeology. Wow. Okay. So how, how did you... Why did you choose that? I mean, that's just kind of unusual. That's, I mean, it's not unusual. What did you plan on doing it's with it when you specific. got it? Yeah, yeah, well, there wasn't actually a plan. Um, I think I mentioned that I wandered across the street and became a Christian in my late teens. When I went home to my Catholic family, they were not terribly excited about this new commitment in my mm. life. So I actually was thrown out of my home. Um, at the age of 16, wow. a family took me in. I got to finish high school. And by mistake, really, I landed in a little Assemblies of God Bible College. Wow. Um, found out everybody else belonged to this little denomination I'd never heard of um, about two weeks in um, and uh, worked in Teen Challenge in Philadelphia uh, most of my summers, which is very exciting. That One, is exciting. Wow. Yeah. That's a great ministry. Yeah. Teen Challenge. Fantastic. Yeah. No, total, total life changer. In fact, the cross and the switchblade, with which most folks haven't even heard of oh, yeah. anymore, um, God used that book. Someone dropped mm-hmm. it in my hands. I read it, mm-hmm. and I didn't even know professional ministry existed. I was a Catholic kid raised in a Jewish neighborhood. I didn't know Protestants existed. Um, I read this book. Uh, God grabbed hold of my heart. Um, uh, I couldn't sleep. I went to one of the elders in my little house church, and I told her what was going on. She said, oh, what you're experiencing is a, is a call to ministry. And I said, a what? Um, she said, well, a, a call to professional ministry. And I was like, well, we're all ministers. What do you mean? She's like, well, you need to go to a Bible college. And I said, okay, what's that? And um, she knew of two, and one of them lost my application, and the other one was assemblies. So that's how that happened. So that's where that's you fantastic went. to see how yeah. God just kind of guided your past. And you got experience, you got taught about all of Christianity pretty quick. Yeah, yeah. In fact, um, and then later on, I'm going to marry a Greek Orthodox guy. So I got I got the whole thing. Wow, you have all, all the denominations, the whole thing, whole thing. <laughs> That's fabulous. I know what a what a, a unique biblical worldview that you're you're walking out on a daily basis. I, I, I call myself a Heinz 57. So um, so the answer to that is I went into ministry um, off the bat, and I worked in Teen Challenge. I worked in youth ministry. I did a lot of associate stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, God just kept sort of redirecting my path and sort of narrowing the target. And I dropped into Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary on the huh? North Shore of you just, Boston. You just dropped in there? I literally dropped in. I was, I was youth pastoring in Western Mass, and it was two and a half hours away, and I knew I needed some more training. So mm-hmm. I just drove out there as often as I could afford a class. And as I started filling in the gaps for my undergraduate education, a lot of it would have been Old Testament stuff and Hebrew, um, I loved what I was doing, uh, but I intended to stay in ministry. And uh, one of the, the less elegant parts of this story is the assemblies in my day was not real keen on either women mm-hmm. or education. And so I was kind of a double whammy you outlier. Were, you yeah. were living on the edge. I was on the edge. And <laughs> um, I mean, your spiritual gifts came out and they didn't like it. Kind of, yeah. Yeah. So they kept moving me around to, you know, make me more appropriate. And God kept blessing it anyway. And 
the little women's Bible study they gave me exploded and this, you know, it was, it was humorous at looking back on it now. So my senior pastor at the time was kind of in um, cognitive dissonance over me. Uh, it was obvious that I had a calling, mm-hmm. but he really didn't want me in the pulpit. So what are you going to do with that? Mm. So he encouraged me to check out education. And I said, okay, well, I'm open to the leading of the Holy Spirit for sure. And um, he actually pulled some strings for me, and that had never happened before, and got me an adjunct position at Zion Bible Institute, which I think is probably Zion University or something now, Sure. Um, in Providence, Rhode Island. And so I went there to teach a semester of intro to Old Testament. They were still in uniforms. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's how conservative they Mm -hmm. were. And the whole time I'm sitting there saying, God, speak to me. I'm wide open. I want to stay in the church, but hey, I'll, I'll do anything you tell me. And I did not get through introducing my syllabus before the heavens opened. And I knew that I knew that I had been designed in the womb to do this. Wow. And that's when I started going to my Gordon-Conwell prof saying, what do I have to do to move into the academy and into the PhD world? So. Wow. That's a great story. Thanks. And I just love the way you said that God just kept moving people into your life to just get mm-hmm. you equipped so you could do what you do today. Well, and the funny thing is that all those people had my best interests at heart. <laughs> no, but God did. <laughs> but God did. And I have so many junctures. In fact, um, I'm thinking about your listening audience right now. I have so many junctures in my life where all I wanted to do was stay where I was. I was loyal to the core. This was home. This is where I wanted to serve. Mm -hmm. And I got thrown out on my keister. And every time I got thrown out on my keister, uh, the world quadrupled in size. Mm. And and that was one of those stories because Mm -hmm. then I went back to my Gordon-Conwell profs who were reformed. So they don't tend to talk to women about going on for PhDs. And uh, I I don't know about that word reform. When we come back, (laughs) lots more with Dr. Sandra Richter. She's a professor at Westmont University. You can check it online, westmont.edu forward slash people. That's where you can find out all about Sandy Richter. Sandy, here's you just shared an amazing story, and I wish there was more time to go into all your story because I'm sure there's lots of details you left out just out of time constraints. It's radio. You are speaking here at the mm-hmm. summit, the Faith yes. and Work Summit. Talk to us about what the Lord's laid on your heart to share with this audience. Hmm. Well, what I've been asked to talk about is uh, dealing with shepherds and sheep to serve as to lead. Um, a major part of my expertise is actually in the historical, culture, uh, economics, society of the ancient world. And what happens so much in biblical interpretation is that we're dealing with somebody else's culture, we're dealing with somebody else's metaphors, and (laughs) we um, uh, tend to lose track of the fact that the metaphors we're interacting with, the economies we're interacting with, the people we're interacting, are real people who lived in real places and had real Mm -hmm. faith, and we misapply their their images to our world. So really what I'm going to wind up doing at this, at this conference is to sort of lay a found, uh, foundation of what does, uh, what does the image of Shepherd actually communicate regarding leadership and servanthood about those who lead and those who follow. And of course, the heartbeat of this conference 
is how to help Christians be empowered and motivated to bring their faith into that 95 percentile of their world, i.e. where they live and work and sit on PTA boards and interact with neighbors. And uh, this this is a fabulous image for all of that. Uh, it, it is a great one. I don't know. Were you going to say something? Yeah. So I'm just Sorry. curious then. So as you're taking this conversation about the shepherd and the sheep, mm-hmm. um, are you pulling from all of your Old Testament yes. um, yes. studying uh-huh. and stuff? So so how? tell me about that. What, what does that look like as you delve in and say, okay, what is the sheep and the shepherd and how are we to learn from that? Right. Well, great question. And cut me off when it goes too long. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. um, it's, it's always interesting to me that students of the Bible seem to think that the Bible creates created these images Hmm. and that this is all what I'll say in my books, Biblish. Um, I have a book called The Epic of Eden, which is designed specifically to put the Old Testament back into the hands of the church. And so I create a term in there, Biblish. Biblish. It's in the Bible. It's in English, but we've used it so many times it's become gibberish. And the way to rehabilitate that type of terminology, words like covenant, words like shepherd, words like redemption, is to actually put them back into the context from which they came. Because our biblical writers are not opening up the theological dictionary of the Old Testament and coming up with, oh, that's a cool word, let's use that. Mm -hmm. They're actually pulling images and concepts out of their everyday world in order to communicate to everyday people that this is what it looks like to be a citizen of the kingdom. This is what God's up to. This is what redemption means. This is why he calls himself father. Um, So when we get to an image like shepherd, we find out that the concept of shepherd as the ideal leader actually goes back to the earliest stages of writing. So it goes back even further than that. We've got Egyptian pharaohs and Naramsin of Mesopotamia and Enlil of the Pantheon of Mesopotamia, all identifying themselves as shepherds. And largely because in the economy of the ancient world, uh, sheep keeping was a part of every level of society, from the royal courts with tens of thousands of animals Mm -hmm. to the everyday family with six to eight animals. Everyone knew what a good shepherd looked like. Everyone knew what a bad shepherd looked like. And everyone had lived with the results of one or the other. And, of course, everyone had seen sheep that had been well cared for. Mm -hmm. And everyone had seen sheep that had been poorly cared for. And so it's just a very powerful image. And it's all over the biblical world. You know, the t- as I was reading about you, the, one of the topics that came up, your your title, wasn't it Reimagine Our Work? Wasn't there something like that? In, reimagine Our Work? In, in my particular title, it's To Serve is to Lead is the subtitle. But Reimagining Work is part of the larger uh, segment in which I'll be speaking. Okay. And um, the reimagining, again, is that business of helping Everyone realize that it doesn't matter what the nameplate is on your desk. Mm-hmm. You're serving the kingdom with whatever you're doing. Right. And even if there isn't a nameplate on your desk, and I'll talk tomorrow about the fact that everyone has a flock of some sort, every person. Mm. And that flock might be two, you know, audacious toddlers who are sucking the life out of you as far as you can tell right now. And let me encourage you, young mothers, it will get better. Um, Or you could be, you know, the CEO of Fortune 500, or you could be running a three-man staff at the physical plant, but everybody's got a flock. Right. And and everybody's got an over-shepherd. 
And not only just in the work world do we all have some boss somewhere we're answering to, we as Christians have the boss that we're answering to, and he identifies himself as a shepherd as well. We're talking with Sandy Richter. She's a professor at Westmont College. Is it Westmont College or Westmont University? Westmont College. Westmont College in Santa Barbara, California. Westmont.edu, westmont.edu. Uh, and you can also find out more about her at Seedbed Publishers. You can find out that's where your articles are at. Um, Seedbed publishes my curriculums. Okay. So if you actually like listening to me, this is a great place to hear more. Um, and I think we've got three or four curriculums out at this point uh, designated for folks who are um, uh, in the middle of the road of their discipleship, folks who are more advanced. And I just put out one that's brand new for seekers that I'm very excited about. What's it called? It is, um, they're calling it uh, the Epic of Eden Ruth. Yeah, you got to work with your publisher. Don't hear that, Seabed. Um, I wanted it to be called Ruth for Seekers because it's all about an outsider finding her way in. Oh. It's short. It's passionate. Anyone wants to read it. You can do it in your living room. You can do it on break. And it's all about ordinary people doing extraordinary things that transform their personal story and the story of a nation. You know, I just... <laughs> you made me giggle. I love it. So what the title is, real? I'm still going back to Ruth. Yeah, the real title is uh, The Epic of Eden, Ruth. The Epic of Eden, Ruth. So I just, I, I'm just thinking about your students because you said the word, you said, you know, if you like listening to me or like what you hear or something like that. And I would, I would have to believe that your students can, can become very engaged yeah. because you have the ability to take some, <laughs> a lot of concepts that might be, you know, we people haven't necessarily delved into mm-hmm. and spend the time researching, but yet you you bring it to life and you make it real. And um, I'm, Thank I'm enjoying listening to you. And there are so many things I'm thinking, I want to ask this. I want to ask that. I want to, and I, we just don't have the time. All right. So before we run out of time, okay. Sandra Richter. Yes, sir. So what are the traits of a good shepherd? Ah, well, one of the things I'll do tomorrow is a fellow named Tim Laniac from Gordon-Conwell in Charlotte uh, spent his Albright um, year uh, living with a Bedouin. And so he, I, wow. is that cool or what? Cool, so, smelly, yeah, cool. Exactly. Cool, smelly, <laughs> uncomfortable. Um, but he interviewed every shepherd he could find oh. and, um, and lived with them and, and interacted with them. And I, I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, ruthlessly use his data, but I'm advertising him. Um, things like uh, sheep are stupid. Uh, they're nearsighted. They are defenseless. Uh, they truly will respond to the relational bond that they have with their shepherd. They do come when they're called, and they come by name. Um, they, they're just such a cool image of uh, what a flock, again, regardless if it's that tassel of kids you've got at home or that 10,000 employees yeah. you've got at the company, what they need. And they embody the fact that human beings need leaders. They need leaders. Mm -hmm. We do. And we need leaders who are honest and self-sacrificing. There's there's an amazing quote that comes from a guy named George Adam Smith. He was the earliest historical geographer for biblical studies. This is this is the late 1800s. The first time we figure out where Jericho is, is late 1800s. Okay. A little behind the curve. Yeah. Um, and he went and rode all over Palestine. And he's got this quote about the shepherds he met. 
and sleepless, clear-sighted, every sheep on his heart. Uh, this man stands there against wind and cold, armed, armed and dangerous, midwife and healer, um, leader and warrior. It's just that I, I can't quote it exactly, but that's a shepherd. That's a shepherd. Someone who will fight for his own, mm-hmm. who will die for his own but also knows how to turn a breech lamb mm-hmm. so that his ewe doesn't suffer and die in the process of birthing. Um, that image of a leader, oh my gosh, if I could work for that person, it would rock my world. Amen. Mm. Wow. So then I assume the challenge is going to be along the line of talking about getting us to be the leaders like a shepherd. Yeah, it Excellent. would be. And, and realizing that we work below and we work above, and every one of us does. Can people take your courses just like one at a time? They don't have to like have a whole degree. They can just listen to Sandy Richter every day? I think so. All right. I think so. Check out Sandy online, westmont.edu, westmont.edu forward slash people. Sandy Richter, thanks for being on I Work For Him today. You are welcome. Thanks for having me. It's been a lot of fun. We, this easily could have been a whole hour. We have with us for the second half of the show, Sharice Jones, Larry Ward, and Ethan Daly. We're going to have a conversation today. Well, you know, I'm not even sure how to cage the conversation, but we're going to have a conversation today about how the church can be used in order to really start solving some of the social and societal issues that are built in. They're just ingrained in our society that the church has really pretty much stepped back from for a lot of years. So we're going to open up the conversation. Cerise, I'm going to start with you. Talk to me about, and you're a fellow Floridian from Winter Haven. Win, from Winter Haven. I said it right, Winter Haven. I was just giving me that funny look. I'm like, you screwed it up again. It's, it's I, 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 okay, Winter Haven, Florida. Talk to yes. me about how did you, Sharice, become a follower of Jesus? Oh, wow. So I know that we can't take up the whole show no, with, my, with my testimony, but I reached a place in my, I think my late 20s, or no, actually my early 30s, that was a really broken place um, coming off of a divorce, um, just re-getting myself resituated in life. And from that place and from the prayers of family and friends, who were just reaching out and kind of guiding me through the the journey of being in that situation and being in that bro- that state of brokenness. Um, God just t- started the light, just started filtering in into my heart, and I remember the distinct moment of me just reading the Bible. And at that time, I had a Bible that had at the back of the Bible, you know, what it was to be a sinner and the nature of sin. And those kinds of things. And as I was reading the word, I just remember at that moment of reading mm-hmm. and just seeing and feeling the power of, of Christ enter my heart. Mm. And all of those moments of pain and things that I had experienced, um, I just felt the love of God just overshadow me and overtake me. So that was my coming to Christ moment and just really surrendering and just being at a place of surrender that mm-hmm. I can't do anything, no matter how well degreed I am, no matter how, you know, what the greatness of being brought up in a family, um, just going through my own personal journey of, of things of choices and, and brokenness that Jesus Christ was the only one that could come and, and fix that and to heal my heart. So from that point, it was about surrendering and saying, okay, you have my life. Amen. You have my life now. So what do you want me to do with it? Mm, and we're so. going to hear about what he wants you to do with it exactly. next. Larry Ward, talk to me about how did you come to be a follower of Jesus? 
came to be a follower of Christ. Um, actually, I was raised in church. Uh, my father was a pastor, um, and being raised in church along my other two siblings, we were taught to go to church all the time. It was kind of like the mandatory thing. Went to church, but wasn't believe in Christ. You had a drug problem. You were drugged to church I guess so. five days a week. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was it. one of those things. And, he, and his father did the same thing because his, his father what you was a pastor. Mm-hmm. And um, when I turned 18 years old, um, I was sitting in my bedroom, actually. Mm-hmm. And I began to just read and mm-hmm. began to think about my, you know, for, for whatever reason, it was eternal destiny. It was a, mm-hmm. just thinking about what, what would happen if I if I died? What would happen if I somehow got killed? So I, I had no um, answer mm-hmm. of where I could assuredly go. Mm-hmm. And, and the Lord really showed up in, mm-hmm. in that moment mm-hmm. and said that there can be assurance in your life of not being afraid mm-hmm. of that ever again. Um, and I gave my life to Christ right in my bedroom. And, I, and, and, and it was at that moment that I knew something had changed in my life because immediately I went to my record collection. The thing that the record collection that I always collected yes. from R&B, Motown, and I gave all my record collection away. Mm-hmm. I didn't sell it. I just gave it away. Mm-hmm. And so I said, something happened to me because <laughs> I would never do this on my own. Right. But mm-hmm. it, was a, it was a turning moment for me, and I never, never looked back. And God has done some fantastic things in my life. Fantastic. All right, Ethan Daly, talk to you about how did you come to be a follower of Jesus? Well, I've been a Christian since a very young age, so all my life. So I remember when I was nine years old um, that I was, we were attending a new church at the time, my mother and I. My mom had raised me by herself this whole time. And so we actually both came to Christ around the same time. Um, but we were at church and they were up on stage and they were uh, talking about what it what it takes in order to go to heaven and um, and to pray uh, to pray um, the, the sinner's prayer. Um, and so when I heard that message, it was just some, so whatever it was that was uh, the way that it was presented. I went home quietly in my bedroom later that night and I, I prayed that prayer. And I said, God, I want to be with you in heaven. Right. Um, right before that time, um, my mom was sort of reeling in a lot of ways uh, because her father died. Mm. And so um, it was very interesting that that same time he died when he was 70 years old and they were very close with one another. But we both had the same kind of um, vision or imagination that we saw him in heaven at a young age. Um, uh, from from sort of from the rear view that he was uh, walking healthy in heaven and mm. um, and we had we had we had this sort of same thing happen to us but we hadn't told each other about it until much mm-hmm. later um, and so I thought that was really interesting <laughs> um, but since that time. Um, yeah, I've been following Christ and since a very young age, got really interested in, in how the Bible tapped my imagination. Uh, I spent a lot of time reading Revelations because I thought some of the imagery in there, some of the things yeah. are really interesting to me yeah. just at that level. But um, but yeah, that's that's been my, my journey since that time. All right. we, so we got Larry, you're from Massachusetts. Ethan, you're from Michigan. Sharice, you're from Florida. We're from Florida. You guys said you'd never known each other until this weekend. No. Okay. That's correct. But something brought you together in commonality. Sharice, what is it? <laughs> the summit, the Faith at Work Summit, and this topic of wealth creation in the black community. Um, I was part of the planning committee for movement organizations and was invited by the organizers of the summit to participate. And from that initial discussion of what types of workshops do we want to see that would be of great benefit and speak into faith work integration um, with economics and what is the conversation. 
conver- what are those conversations that need to be had? So um, one of those conversations that we agreed as a organizing or a planning committee that needed to be had was wealth creation in the black community. Um, we have heard um, from larger, uh, maybe majority demographics of what it means to integrate faith work and economics, but there are pockets and segments of the population in our communities that what does this look like in this particular context? And so we felt that this was a a topic that was worth exploring, that was worth having conversation and dialogue, but just not just conversation and dialogue, but what was going to be... um, encouraging and inspiring and also engage us and move us towards action and some real sustainable solutions. All right. So I love that. And I want to talk about sustainable solutions. I want to talk about solutions because this is, you know, my whole aim in having this conversation today is I want to talk about the solutions the church can bring because the body of Christ needs to be behind real solutions in our community. So wealth creation of black community, Larry Ward, wealth creation, you and I had a conversation yesterday. Why is wealth creation such a battle why is it so hard to do in the black community well i I think it's a difficult thing to do because people don't like to talk about money Uh, money makes people uncomfortable and depending on where you have come from in terms of your background well the question is um, did you hear conversations uh, by those adults uh, concerning their money did you did they talk about things like savings? Do they talk about things like it's important to have an income where you can pay your bills? Um, so, so those are kind of like taboos. And, and I know in my, my tradition, uh, many things that may be talked about free, pretty freely now mm-hmm. in talk shows, we weren't taught to talk about any of that. And because talking about that was to kind of reveal a lot of the family secrets or or put somebody in a position that might look in a, in a bad light. So money is very hard to talk about with families as well. Okay, but let's just talk about the money thing, this wealth creation thing in the black community. You shared some stuff yesterday that there's some pretty basic stuff that overall, and I'm sure it's not categorical and it's not everybody, but you told me yesterday that the black community, by and large, has never really been told how to man- taught how to manage money. I may not be stating that right, but we talked yesterday about... Explain what you told me yesterday. A man- money management... Um, has not often been taught taught to the black community because you know pretty much people were uneducated themselves. So if our parents were uneducated about handling money, they paid the bills and they did whatever they could, but they never understood the concepts of money. I think money has a language. Money has uh, have to understand terminology, and it takes like you if you're learning how to do a skill, you have to learn how to use this do a skill uh, as far as money, mm-hmm. you have to know how to understand that as well. Mm-hmm. And so we have to at least begin the conversation and say, you know what, there, there's, a, there's some language and conversation and terminology that you have to understand if you're going to handle money right. Ethan, I'm, I'm a little disadvantaged with you because we didn't have a chance to talk before the show today. Talk to, us, talk to me about your perspective on, on this wealth creation in the black community. What are you bringing to the table? Yeah, well, I can touch on what, what Larry was talking about in terms of sort of how do we sort of break this cycle of poverty across different generations? Because if our parents weren't didn't have an opportunity to sort of learn these things and, and their parents and sort of going back and, and all that sort of thing, um, how do we sort of trace that back in terms of what are, the, what are some of the original sins of our country when we think about this stuff 
And this is where it gets really hairy because hmm. we have really a hard time. So I mean, it gets just, messy or does it get hairy? What do you mean? It gets me- it's a messy conversation, I think, for a lot of us to talk about the, the history of slavery in this country because uh, be- a lot of because of what's happening right now. But I think uh, because it's it's um, it's an uncomfortable conversation to have in a lot of ways, uh, particularly for folks that are not in the black community, because a lot of times it sort of instills these feelings of what we might call white guilt. And I, one of the things that, you know, I, I try to discuss with people, because I, I talk to people in, in different churches about this all the time, is that, um, is that it's, not so much about, <laughs> it's not so much about white guilt. It's about sort of this larger idea about, in this country, we have a real problem, Jim, in that we tend to base, when we think about success in the material sense, we really try to raise up that individual person. Right. Bill Gates comes to mind. Warren Buffett comes to mind. All these people we say, well, that person, they really did it. When really what I think we're taught from, you know, from the faith community is that no, God is the one that does it. Right. And, and you just have to be there to be the willing vessel. So we sort of have to reorient ourselves into thinking about what is the true measure of success and then how does that success happen? And it does, it's the same way that, you know, we say we're saved as an individual, but we come to faith as a community of believers. So when we talk about some of these other things, we have to think about this as a community. You know, Sharice, you said something to me yesterday and you're not enough time for you to comment now, but when we come back, you can comment again. You said there's a lot of layers we got to peel back in order to be able to have this conversation in order for all of us that will one day kneel before the throne of God because it says people from every tribe and tongue and nation will be before that throne. But these layers have got to get pulled back in order for the church, the body of Christ to work together. We need to pull back some of those layers. And I want to talk about this white guilt thing when we come back, but I want to talk about peeling back the layers. We're so excited to be here and we've got some new friends we're meeting that we met yesterday and we're talking to today. We've got Sharice Jones. She's from Winter Haven, Florida. We've got Larry Ward. He's from Boston, Massachusetts. And we got Ethan Daly. He's from Grand Rapids, Michigan. These three met here in Chicago at the Faith and Work Summit, and they all have a common goal. They wanted to talk about how, how do we build wealth creation? How, does, how do we create wealth in the black community? And, and I want to have a conversation about it because I really believe that the body of Christ it needs to be involved in this conversation as a whole because I believe it's a community effort in order to be able to get this done because there's been, there's so much stuff. And we talked about this yesterday, Larry Ward, that there's so much stuff that's never been talked about um, between the black community and the white community. Things that as we were 50 year olds that we never, that we've just learned in the last year, stuff that has gone on in the black community, the white, that the majority of the white community doesn't have any idea. But I don't want to talk politics, and I don't want to talk regulations and things like that. That I want to talk about solutions because Jesus is the ultimate solution to all this. But you, you, Ethan Daly, mentioned something right before the break: white guilt, sure. and it is true. No, I didn't have any slaves, and you know, I, I, and when I grew up in Baltimore, I had lots of mixed race friends. Mm-hmm. Then I grew up in Minnesota, where I literally graduated in a class of 950 people with one black kid. Mm-hmm. I mean, so, so we've all had different upbringings, and we all have a lot of different education, but yet I do feel bad about the way the black community and the Latino community and so many other communities have been treated, even the, the mountain communities, which don't have any of those races in them. But we can't be driven by guilt. We've got to be driven by redemption and salvation in Jesus. And, and But how do you deal? How, how should we deal with the white guilt? Is it appropriate for me to say, I am heartbroken by what happened? I don't know what to deal with that because it's true. I'm heartbroken by what happened. Even though I didn't do it, I'm still heartbroken by it. 
Yes. Yes, that's absolutely appropriate to say that I'm heartbroken. We are really uncomfortable with doing that, I think. Mm -hmm. You know, when we think about what happens in, in, in the Bible where God's people lament, Right. We're not lamenters in this day and age no. because we, we, we are distracted. Right. We don't we don't want to deal with the uncomfortable feelings, but that's what we have to do. Uh, it's not that I, I don't mind lamenting, but I want to move past lamenting because I want solutions because I'm tired of I'm tired of my brothers and sisters in Christ being treated unfairly. Mm-hmm. But when I as I've learned and Sharice, you and I had a little bit of this conversation, we Martha and I just have learned this in the last couple of years. I mean, there's there's a mountain of federal regulation that keeps the black community in a lot of the trouble that it's in. Right, right. So what we were what we were speaking about in terms of layers, like um, blacks were historically prevented from building wealth by slavery, the institution of slavery, that's a part of our, our history in this country, but also by Jim Crow laws, which were those laws that enforced segregation in the South until the Civil Rights Act, Act of 1964. But not just in the South. Let's make sure we, that's well, important. Exactly. Not just in the South. So there was this whole culture in institutional systems that kind of provided this infrastructure or framework that was designed to keep not only blacks, but other people of color from accessing and becoming a part, a true part of the American dream, mm-hmm. right? Um, those that pursuit of happiness and, and those types of ideals that the country stands Let's for. Let's just give a real basic right. example. Real estate. I was told that right. the majority of the wealth in the United States has been created through real estate wealth. Mm-hmm. And yet we learned that our parents in northern cities were right. told when they first bought their first house, moved into communities after World War II and after mm-hmm. the Korean War, they bought their first house. They were told they could never sell that house to a black couple. Okay. That's right. I mean, that's really what has driven because everybody, I mean, there was not a lot of wealth prior to World War II, Mm -hmm. a lot of wealth after it, but a lot of it is this real estate wealth. Mm -hmm. So we we can't go back and fix that, but how do we take the the idea of entrepreneurship? Mm -hmm. How do we bring that idea into the black community to bring flourishing? Talk to me about how we can... And again, we could do a week's worth of shows on this, yes, but I want to bring solution sure, and, and, and I want to bring healing. I want to be part of bringing healing, even though God's the only one that can really bring the healing. But And we want to open the eyes of our listeners. Oh, I right. think that's one of the, the key hearts for Jim and I is to say, you know, we're at a table with new friends right. and we're just having the discussion and letting our listeners hear that, that we can, as the body of Christ, ask, what do I do? What can I do? And what is God calling me to do? Because it it doesn't mean that we all have to change what we're doing, but we can, we can look at things differently. We can approach things differently. And if there is something that we're doing inappropriately, that we find out how to fix it. All right. So we're talking with Ethan Daly from Grand Rapids, Michigan, Larry Ward from Boston, Massachusetts, and Sharice Jones from Winter Haven in Florida. All right. So the question is entrepreneurship. Mm -hmm. You're talking about wealth creation in the black community. We've got to bring jobs, but it's not just jobs. We need to allow our black citizens to create businesses. But I've been told that it's really difficult to get those those uh, startup loans and things like that. Talk to me. How do we use entrepreneurship to bring flourishing? Who wants to take that question first? I, I think I think the entrepreneurship side of it to bring flourishing that needs some to be some kind of incubator to bring people together with the ideas to kind of have some type of um, pathway. Um, because what we've discovered, and we did some some of these different models, mm-hmm. that there needs to be a pathway. So if they have an idea, well, how do they get started? Where can they find capital? Who can we bring around them to actually partner in these in these in these ventures where entrepreneurship can happen? Um, so I, I think that it's beginning of getting people together, starting up these types of 
of incubators and and see actually what happens. Let it kind of take its course. Sharice, what do you think? I, I think from the faith perspective that we have um, a multitude of examples in the Bible and scriptures where we see that God from the beginning was a creator, right? Um, the ultimate, ultimate imaginer, right? Mm-hmm. And we are made in the image of God. So deposited within each of us, regardless of the race, regardless of the economic condition or where we come from, there is something inherently in us that has gifts and skills and abilities that God has deposited in us that come out in the form of entrepreneurship. So when you talk about Paul as being a tent maker, right? He was a missionary and a prolific writer of the New Testament, but he was also a tent maker. Lydia, who was a purveyor of silks. Mm -hmm. So she had a business that helped to fund the church and to fund ministry. So we have all of these examples. And so from a faith perspective, it would be easy for us to embrace as a church, the idea of entrepreneurship, because inherited in our spiritual DNA is this thing that God has put in us to bring all of those things out. We just need to come alongside each other to cultivate that. Ethan. Yeah. And here's what I would say that I want you, uh, your listeners to understand is that we have this sort of misconception about uh, poverty in the hood. Mm -hmm. The reality is that there are tons of people right here in Chicago where we did this work and we're doing this in Grand Rapids and all over this country. Mm -hmm. Tons of people that are in the hood that are entrepreneurs. And right now they're doing it out of necessity because there's no work available. Right. So they got hustle. They got resilience. Mm-hmm. You have to have resilience mm-hmm. in order to do this stuff. Well, there's tons of them. And so we want we want people to understand that we want to affirm like these guys were saying, we want to affirm work at that basic level. Mm-hmm. And then we want to bring these different resources to bear around training folks properly, around helping them leverage other relationships to people that are in the marketplace. And then we also want to be able to help leverage these other capital resources. Mm-hmm. Is there any city, any urban environment in this country where this is being done successfully on a, on a, even just a small scale? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Give me, can you give me an example? I just... Right here in Chicago, my okay. friend. Yeah, yeah. So before I was in Grand Rapids, I spent several years here uh, on the south side of the neighborhood. Okay. We, we had a program. It's called Sunshine Enterprises. So for folks who want to look that up, it's right there at sunshineenterprises.com. Uh, but we were able to start this thing by, again, affirming entrepreneurship at the neighborhood level. We've got 700 people that have been taken through that program over the mm. last six years. Out of that, we have hundreds of businesses that have been launched and been started across the South Side. But a lot of people are thinking, okay, w- and, and I know some of this is true and some of it is probably not true, but a lot of people, when you talk about entrepreneurship, a lot of it has happened in the drug trade, and the drug trade has also oppressed the people in the black community. Absolutely. And, and the hustle you talk about, this people is like, well, they haven't been able to get uh, startup businesses, but they have... They they hustle. They hustle what they've been given to sell. Absolutely. So how can you bring in? And that may have been some generalizations in there. So I apologize if there was anything offensive in there because that was not what that was meant to be. Fine. But how do we bring in good jobs and new businesses and overcome the oppression that the drug trade has really been a big bad influence in those same areas? Yeah, I'll say one quick thing about that, then oh, I'll let oh. these guys talk. So just this this talk about the what's called the shadow economy or the informal economy. This is economy that is running off the books. Right. Right. So these are businesses in that sense, but they're not part of things. Right. So but people tend we tend to associate sort of drug drug dealing and counterfeiting with that. But that's only one fraction of all the other stuff that's happening. Payday lending. There's all those other kinds of things. Yeah. Sharice, go ahead. You were going, "Mm," and you're shaking your head at me. So I didn't didn't know if I I I, I ticked you off or what I did. No, no, no. You didn't tick me off. But what what happens as a, a community of faith sometimes is that we will go and we will 
kind of point our finger and shame, okay? Um, I wish I had a camera exactly. going. Exactly. Right yeah, I'm, I'm, wag- I'm wagging my shame on you. <laughs> but it, this goes back to really walking out our faith. And it, we, it, it is a precarious situation. It could often be dangerous. But we have to see even the people, even the drug dealer as an image bearer. Because when we say sharing the gospel, it's just not going, sometimes it's going to get messy and it's going to get uncomfortable, but we have, as as a church, have to be very stealth and we have to kind of go into communities and and provide other options. Larry Ward, 10 seconds. I, I just think that it just makes makes sense to really steward these gifts and steward right. all these abilities and resources to come together to really do something positive. I, I want to do a whole show where all we do is bring a whole solution. Let's, let's map it out. Let's do it. But thank you so much to Sharice Jones, Larry Ward, and Ethan Daly. Thank you guys for being on I Work For Him today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to I Work For Him with your host, Jim and Martha Brangenberg. We're Christ followers. Our workplace, it's definitely our mission field, but ultimately, I, I work, work For Him. him.